So this morning, um, our reading starts at Exodus chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them as they encamped at the sea by, by Pi-Harathon in front of Baal-Hal-Zaphon. When Pharaoh grew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not what we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea, back by strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels, so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord drew the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots, and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them, to their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And if we go on to uh, chapter 15, verse 13. You have led your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed, You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Cain have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, until the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we sung in that song, Open My Eyes That I Might See. And we confess, our Father, that without the help of your Spirit, we would not see the Lord Jesus for who he is. And so, Father, we pray for your Spirit's help with us now as we hear and reflect on this word. Please help us to see Christ more clearly. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's often said, isn't it, that Christians live in the now, but not yet. We live in the now, as in there are many things that we now have as Christians. We're forgiven completely in the Lord Jesus. We have a relationship with the Father. We receive God's Holy Spirit. But there are many things that are not yet. We're not yet in God's new creation. 
we're not yet in a world that has been completely released of its uh, uh, futility. We're not with God physically. We're now, but we're not yet. But that experience of now and not yet can be a deeply uncomfortable one, can't it? Uh, Peter, writing to the church in the New Testament, calls the churches elect exiles. They're elect, wonderfully, they're, they're chosen, but he also calls them exiles. And so think kind of the UN white tents uh, housing refugees. That's the kind of picture Peter uses of the Christian experience. And the very fact that we're not at our destination, we've not yet reached the not yet, can make us ask the question, will we get there safely? I guess lots of us will think ahead uh, of all the ways we might possibly mess it up or trip up in the years ahead. The sins, the temptations we might face. And we think of ourselves and we think, we are so weak, how can I possibly keep the faith uh, for many years to come? Or perhaps it's some experience, some suffering that horrifies us as we contemplate it. And we think, if that happens, well then I don't think I could stay the course. Or perhaps we look forward to the experience of things like death itself. We know one day it will come, but we look at that event and we think, is that really possible that God can bring me through that, as he says? Or perhaps it's when we read parts of the Bible that speak about God's judgment, the fact that everyone will appear before Jesus, and we think to ourselves, yeah, but there might be a bit of God that kind of is angry with me, a bit that I haven't noticed. How can I safely get through the judgment to come? See, there's all sorts of questions, isn't there, that that are prompted by the fact that we're not yet home, we're not yet in God's new creation. I don't know if this works, but I find so often it feels like we're the kind of tightrope walker. We know there's a solid line in front of us, but we feel that we've got to kind of do all we can to stay there. Well, these chapters this morning uh, in Exodus uh, 13 to 15 are about convincing us, persuading us that God is able to keep his promises. That when God promises to bring all those in Christ into his new creation... Nothing can stop that purpose. Nothing can stop his salvation. Now, I know this is probably the kind of bit of Exodus we've all been looking forward to. This is the kind of bit that everyone thinks of. Someone talked to me uh, earlier in the week about Charlton Heston uh, splitting the waters uh, before him, if that means anything to you. Um, For me, it was uh, brought back memories of Bruce Almighty dividing the soup uh, in his bowl. Yes, a few of us have seen it. But as we've seen so often in Exodus, it's not the action itself that's the focus or the kind of teaching point. Rather, the context around that action helps us understand what the author is trying to teach us. And so it's important we don't just kind of focus on the action in the abstract on itself, but we look at the context and think, how does that help us interpret the action's relevance? Now, what's the context of our passage today? Well, let's look at the beginning and the end. Notice where we start at the beginning. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 19. Uh, They leave uh, leave, uh, um, Egypt, uh, and verse 19 we read, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones with you. 
from here. Now, a lot of us take too much luggage on holiday, don't we? Um, but I guess none of us have ever tried to pack a coffin uh, with someone's bones in. So why are we being told that this is, um, jo- uh, Joseph's body is being taken with them? Well, it's reminding us, isn't it, that God is about to bring them into the land. He's about to fulfill his promises to Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And look at where we finish at the end of this passage, uh, just skipping ahead a bit, at 15 verse 17 on page 74 of these little booklets. It says this, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So you notice the focus isn't on the the salvation through the waters, it's actually looking forward to the moment God will dwell with his people on his mountain, in his sanctuary or holy place. So the focus here of this event is not on the kind of event itself, although we will get to that, but rather helping us to see that this will enable God's people to get to the land. But of course, there is a huge problem, isn't there? In between them and the land stands the Egyptians and stands the sea. And you get a sense of how the people feel about that in 14 verse 10 when we're told that uh, they feared greatly. But by the end of the passage, we're going to see that they're massively confident, as we've seen in that song, about God's ability to get them into the land. And so we too, as we look at this event, we too will share their confidence, I hope that God will get us into the land. Now, how do we know that? How do we know God will keep his promises? How do we know that we have nothing to fear uh, in this life and his promises will not get derailed? Well, we look, first of all, uh, that God's salvation will not get derailed. Secondly, that God's salvation comes through the seemingly impossible. And thirdly, God's salvation has already come. And so we're going to finish Only you have to be silent, and we'll look at that in a bit more detail. Now, if God's priority here is to rescue his people, well, then he kind of makes some questionable choices, doesn't he? Uh, God speaks to Moses, uh, I guess a bit like an ancient sat-nav, but the the directions God gives, you expect to be followed with make a U-turn, because notice the directions that God gives in verse 1. Uh, Verse 2, rather. Tell the people of Israel to turn back. Now, why on earth would you want to turn back? I mean, the whole of Exodus has been about getting out of the land. And now God is saying to Moses, turn back. Uh, Not only that, he tells them to encamp, uh, in verse 2, in front of the sea. Now, I'm not a military strategist, but I can tell that camping in front of the sea when you've got an enemy on your doorstep is not a good idea because 180 degrees of your escape route is cut off. So why does God give these directions? Well, look at what he says will happen. Verse 4 of chapter 14. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Notice the Lord's work in here. It's not that Israel kind of find themselves in a sticky situation and pray to God for rescue. Rather, God directly puts them in a place 
where they're going to be trapped like a mouse in a mouse trap. And not only that, he hardens Pharaoh's heart so they come out and pursue them. Now, why on earth would God want to do that? Well, verse 4 tells us the answer, doesn't it? That they might know that I am the Lord. Also, look at 14 verse 18 over the page. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, hopefully, if we've been with us uh, in this series of an Exodus, we'll know that that is a big idea in the book. This is all about showing that God is the Lord. He is the I am. He is the indescribable one. And God purposely puts them in this position. He purposely hardens Pharaoh's heart. He purposely brings the army out for a kind of showdown to show that he is the Lord, that nothing can threaten his purposes. Um, I don't know if you come across uh, Harry Houdini. Uh, he was around sort of 120 years ago, so I guess uh, before our time. Uh, but uh, he was a famous escape artist, and uh, he used to do elaborate stunts, uh, the classic kind of putting a straight jacket on and trying to get out of that, uh, but also um, putting some chains on. I saw one picture of him sort of in a tank of water, that type of thing. Um, but the most difficult escape uh, came in 1904, where the Daily Mirror uh, challenged him to an escape from uh, some chains made by the the, the most famous locksmith of the day. Uh, legend had it that this uh, Nathaniel Hart, this locksmith, spent five years fashioning these padlocks and chains for Harry Houdini to escape from. And the moment came for him to escape, and 4,000 people turned out, and 100 journalists came to watch him try and get out of these um, padlocks and chains. Now, apparently, uh, it took about 50 minutes, and nothing really happened. And uh, Harry Houdini asked the guy to unlock him so he could take his coat off and uh, put the chains back on. But uh, they cottoned on to that because they know that if they showed him how it unlocked, that uh, he'd kind of get an advantage. So they refused, and so he took a penknife out of his pocket with his teeth and cut his coat off. And would you believe it, after an hour and ten minutes, he came out with his arms out, and everyone was applauding. See, the thing that makes that such a good story and such a spectacle is the way the ante has risen. I mean, if it was just a kind of straitjacket, well, yeah, it'd be impressive, but not very exciting. But the fact that we know it's this locksmith for five years and the fact that um, no one helps him out at all, well, you think, what an impressive guy. Is there nothing he can't escape from? And it's similar here in the sense that God kind of purposely ups the ante He's putting the chains on. He's putting the straitjacket on. He's putting his people in an impossible situation to show them that really he can save from anything. Nothing can derail his purposes. It's easy, isn't it, to go through life kind of like the tightrope walker. We know there is a path to salvation, but it's very thin and very unstable. And we feel it all comes down to us, our ability to kind of hold on, to keep going. And of course, the Christian life is one of perpetual faith. It is each day taking up our cross, putting our trust in the Lord Jesus. But we forget so often that God keeps us. Our Lord Jesus says this in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish 
no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, the Lord Jesus doesn't just save us to get us uh, going on with the journey on our own. He keeps us. No one will snatch out of his hand. So easy, isn't it, to look at our lives and the way they go and, and think, well, my P45's come through, this, this diagnosis has been received, maybe things are going wrong, the wheels are falling off. But again, remember where the people are. God purposely puts them by the Red Sea, the most impossible of situations, to convince them that he will not be derailed from his purposes. Now, I guess the question is, how do we know that? Well, secondly, we see here not only that nothing will threaten God's salvation, but he works through it precisely through those threats to bring about his salvation. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, look at how the people react to the situation they find themselves in. Uh, have a look at um, 14 verse 10. We read that when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us uh, out of Egypt? Is this not what we said in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, hear what they're saying. They've just seen God bring about these ten plagues over Egypt They've just seen God deliver them from the land of Egypt, and now they're saying it's better for us to be there, to be slaves once more. And that goes to show, doesn't it, how terrifying the Egyptian army marching towards them would have been. It's easy, isn't it, to kind of point the finger and to go, well, they should have trusted God. Of course they should have trusted God, but it is so often our response, isn't it, to God's word and his promises. We know he's done so, so much, but we doubt he's going to finish the job. But God's response here is wonderfully confident. Um, look at verse 15. Uh, this is a real surprise, uh, not what I was expecting God to say. He says, the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Um, that phrase, uh, to go forward, is literally journey on. You see it throughout Exodus, journey on, journey on. And uh, it's the kind of response I give to my kids quite often to encourage them to, uh, to take responsibility for themselves. So um, one of my kids will come to me, they go, oh, Dad, I'm so hot, I'm, I'm roasting. Um, they don't really say that, but they, you know, you get the point. And I'll say to them, well, if you're hot, just take your cardigan off. Why are you complaining to me? Um, that's the point. And it's that same sense here. Journey on. Why are you crying to me? Now, the obvious question for Moses is, well, yeah, but there's a sea behind us. But look at what God says in verse 16. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I mean, it's kind of said like I say to my kids, take the cardigan off if you're hot. Lift up your staff, divide the sea, go through now, why would God say do this when it just seems so impossible? Why does he expect Moses to do it? Well, listen to the language again. See if you can spot where this is from in Scripture. Verse 16, lift up your staff 
and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now, there's two points available for anyone who can spot which bit of the Bible that's coming from. Genesis is a clue. Genesis 1, dividing, dry ground, sea. That they're all the same words. See, it's like God is saying to Moses, have another Genesis 1. Just divide the sea so that you can pass through on dry land. And it shouldn't be a surprise, should it? Because in Exodus, we've seen God undo creation, uh, bringing about judgment uh, through his kind of uh, creative power. And that is the point here, that God is the creator. The sea is no challenge to him because he can just divide it like he divided it at the beginning of the universe. See, it's like the Israelites forget who their God is. Remember, God is the I am. He's incomparable. He's the creator. He's the one who gave life to this world. He is the one who divides the sea and brings about dry land. And yet the Israelites forget that. They cannot see that he can act once more. And it is so easy, isn't it? When we look ahead at things like death itself, we look at the grave and we think to ourselves, how could God possibly bring us through that? Or we think about all our sins and think, how could God possibly bring me safely through judgments? But we forget who our God is. See, if God is able to bring life out of dust, as he did in Genesis, well, then he can bring life out of the grave. And if God brought, um, and God can bring us safely through judgment. See, the people, they change their minds. Look at their response uh, in chapter 40, verse 31. Over the page. We read, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Couldn't be any different, could it? Uh, They're fearing the Egyptians and now they're fearing God and they're trusting their servant Moses. Now what makes the difference? Well, it's because of what happens next. See, in 14 verse 21, they see the water divide, as as God says to Moses, and they walk through the middle of this water safely. It does not destroy them. The Egyptians don't destroy them either. Now, we need to deal with this question, don't we? Because I guess for lots of modern hearers, we, we think to ourselves, did this really happen? And do ask me about this afterwards. Uh, Some point out the fact that there's an east wind mentioned in verse 21 and kind of imagine that it was a bit of a kind of shallow water and the wind blew a bit and uh, kind of that made a a path. But the big question is, how did the Egyptians then drown in some shallow water? Some people point to the fact that it's a kind of myth, that there's kind of ideas of creation there. And absolutely, there are ideas of creation behind this, but that doesn't imply that it didn't happen because it doesn't read like a myth, does it? If you read uh, the account, it gives us specific place names, where they camped, where they went. Uh, The speech, it's surprising. They give all the details. And so, it does read like this really happened. But the point is, people are right to spot that this doesn't normally happen. This is a miracle. This is an unusual event. 
It's not that we can go home and divide the bathwaters just uh, with a kind of walking stick. The point is this was a a one-off. And God can only do this because he is the creator. Nothing is impossible for him. See, this truth that we have the creator God uh, with us, guiding us to the new creation, changes everything. See, it means that we need not doubt when he makes promises to take us home. Because he is the creator, he can bring about life after death, he can bring us safely through judgment, and no threat can truly derail his purposes. The Apostle Paul um, picks up this point in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, He says this, uh, it's an absolutely fascinating passage, he says this, our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now, you can ask me about all the details of that later, but the big point is that Paul is comparing the church to the, the, Egypt, uh, to the Israelites in this uh, passage, that just as they pass through the sea, so we pass through uh, the sea, and we'll come on to that in a moment. But here's what he says uh, at the end of this passage. He encourages the church by saying, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he would also provide the way of escape that you may be able to enjoy it. Therefore, my beloved, three from idolatry. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, look, there's nothing, there's no kind of temptation, there's no kind of direction your life will take where God's going to kind of, where it's going to be too much for you. And just as he provided the way of escape for Egypt, uh, for Israel, so too he provides the way of escape from temptation and from everything we face. See, God doesn't just save uh, the Israelites uh, from Egypt, but he will bring them into the land and nothing is impossible for him. Even the threat of the sea is uh, nothing to our greater God. Now, maybe this does feel a bit like wishful thinking. How do we really know this is true? Well, thirdly and finally, we see that God's salvation has already come. See, the big question I was asking myself in my prep was, um, which side of the water am I on? Am I kind of on the, looking at the water, um, as in kind of as a Christian, am I looking at the water with all the kind of threats and all the kind of difficulties ahead? Or am I on the other side of the water looking back? And, and chapter 15, I think, helps us see that actually there's a lot more behind us than there is in front of us. Uh, see, chapter 15 isn't... Um, given us new information. It's, it's a song about what's just happened. Now, um, I, uh, my kids are really into Julia Donaldson, um, Donaldson rather. Uh, anyone come across those? Gruffalo, Snail and Whale, all those sort of things. And uh, we've got the whole audiobook collection, and uh, I could tell you off by heart, pretty much. And uh, each CD has got two tracks on it. The first track is the story about the Snail and the Whale or the Gruffalo or something, and then the second track is a whole song about what we've just heard. And, um, you know, on a 15-hour journey to the south of France, we're listening to these CDs over and over again. You get the story, and then you get round two with the song. And I can see parents are breaking out in a cold sweat just thinking about it. But it's similar here in the sense of it helps you internalize the story to really understand what's going on. 
and its significance. And so we get chapter 14, the, the event, the story. But then chapter 15, we get the kind of song afterwards. But the point is, this song actually never finishes properly. Uh, it does in verse 17, but have a look at what happens in verse 20 and 21. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine, and in verse 21, she sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is triumphant gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into sea. That, they're the exact same words as the start of the song. And it's so like, it gives the impression that Miriam's continuing to sing this on and on. See, this song is not just for the first people who pass through the sea, it's for future generations. It's a bit like a national anthem to remind them of who they are. See, God's salvation in the past is not a kind of event that we close the book and forget about it, it's something they sing over and over Now, what are Christians meant to do with this whole event? I mean, does this mean that we can pray that our enemies will be thrown into the sea, that the next time we're cut up on Black Dam Roundabout, that we kind of pray they drive into a lake or something like that and it happened? Well, no, obviously it's not. It's pointing forward to God's greater salvation. See, here, in this salvation, we see a pointer towards what happens in the gospel. See, water's hugely symbolic uh, in Scripture. Uh, We've seen in Genesis chapter 1, haven't we, that the universe is made out of the water, out of the chaos uh, that's there. And the return to water is a sign of God's judgment. It's undoing creation. And so in Genesis 1, you get the creation coming out of the water. But then what happens with Noah? Well, the world is plunged back into water. It's the creation's kind of undone. And it's the same here. Moses... Uh, lifts up his staff to open the water, but also the water comes back down on the Egyptians in judgment. Now, you may want to ask me about the Egyptians afterwards, but it's worth just pointing out that God here is bringing the kind of uh, justice on what they did. I remember back in chapter 2 that actually Pharaoh ordered that the Egyptians throw the Israelite babies into the Nile. And now God is bringing that judgment back down on the Egyptians. But the point is that God is bringing the Israelites safely through those waters of judgment whilst the judgment falls on their enemies. Just imagine what that must have felt like as the Israelites got to the other side of the shore. I mean, for all these chapters, for 430 years, they've been suffering oppression in effectively uh, labor camps. See, they looked on the shore at the bodies of their oppressors and they knew, I guess, that there would be no more whip felt on the back, no more child snatched to be thrown in the Nile. Death, oppression, will never touch them again. And we too look back at the shore, not on the broken bodies of the Egyptians, but the broken body of our Saviour, Because the only reason we can truly walk through the waters of judgment safely is because they fell on him. Because he went through on our behalf. The Lord Jesus, when he's approaching the cross, he says something quite surprising to his disciples. It's almost quite cryptic, but it it makes sense when you see this. See, in Mark chapter 10, he says to his disciples, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? 
or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized. Now, he's not obviously speaking about a cup. He's not obviously speaking about literal baptism, but rather they are symbols of the judgment he's about to endure. See, at the cross, Jesus is baptized, not in the sense that Christians are baptized with water, but in the sense that God's judgment falls on him. The waters sweep over him. He is swallowed up in the sea for three days. He walks through and is washed up on the shore. But the point is that all those in him, because the waters have swept over him, can walk through the waters safely. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, uh, we might too walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Do you see what Paul's saying at the end there? If we have died with Christ, well then we certainly will be raised. If we have shared in Christ's death, well, then we will certainly see life. And his point is that because Christ has already died, and because Christ has already uh, risen again, we need not fear what might be around the corner. He has already died. He's already paid the price. The judgment has already fallen. And so we, like the Israelites, can look back absolutely confident and sing songs of joy at what God has already achieved. I want us to finish with verse 14 in chapter 14, where Moses instructs the people. He says this in chapter 14, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Now, when he says you only have to be silent, he's not saying that you have to be passive. Uh, He's not saying you have to keep your mouth shut and uh, kind of um, keep the decibels down. He's saying, you don't have to worry. You just need to kind of trust God. Just, he will fight for you. Don't panic. And it's the same message, isn't it, for us? Uh, Of course, we want to hold on to the Lord Jesus. Of course, we need to keep trust in him. But the point is that God will keep us doing that. He will keep us. No threat like sin or temptation or death, uh, he, he will kind of abandon us to. He will keep us safe uh, from the judgment to come. Not because of our abilities, not because of our confidence we have in ourselves, but because we, in a sense, have already passed through the sea because we are connected to Christ. I love this uh, line by John Newton, I keep coming back to it, where he sings an amazing grace through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for this great truth that you will keep us safe uh, until we come to your new creation. Please help us, Father, never like the Israelites here to doubt your goodness or your promises. Please help us, Father, like Moses instructs, to be those who trust that you will keep us 
and help us to be silent in the right way and trust and lean on the Lord Jesus. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are we meant to see ourselves like? The people or Moses or both? Yeah, good question. And it's a really good question to come back to um, when you're reading these passages. Um, Because quite often we want to think, oh, we're the hero. So we're David who slays Goliath. We're Moses who um, parts the sea. Uh, And as I say, want to kind of do the same in our bathwater. I think my instinct, it's not always the case, but my instinct is to think, actually, we're not the hero. Um, uh, Sorry, that was always the case. We're not the hero. Jesus is. Uh, But to think, uh, actually, who are the other um, people in this narrative and I think with this passage, particularly, we are most like the Israelites. To be honest, we're mainly fearful. Um, we don't always trust the Lord as we should. Uh, and Moses, like, points to Jesus in the sense of he gets us through judgment. So my short answer would be the Israelites. But when Moses stuffs up, I think we're like Moses as well. Good, great question. Is the Israelites' fear of the Egyptians the same as their fear of the Lord? Yes, it's the same word, and um, quite often in the Bible uh, uh, it will talk about fear of the Lord and fear of um, kind of things around us. So even though the word's the same, it's got a slightly different sense. So fear of the Lord isn't kind of cowering terror, it's not that sense but a kind of right reverence of who he is. So just in a way I, I look out on an ocean that's kind of um, in the middle of a storm. Um, my parents live near the beach and you go and see the crashing waves there. The last thing I want to do is get in it. Um, but I, I, in a sense, fear it, but I rightly fear it. Um, it's wonderful. I, I like looking at it, but I don't want to be in it. Uh, and so fear of God is something like that, to kind of have a right sense of who he is. Um, So there is kind of positive fear, if I can put it like that, but then there's negative fear when we fear the wrong things. So for the people, actually the Egyptians were the wrong thing to fear. The right thing was to fear God, not in the sense that God was going to do anything bad to them, but he he kind of had their back and they should have known that. Um, Does that answer the question? I think so. Does that answer your question? Well, if you're at home, you can't come back (laughs) unless you put a new question in. Uh, shooting up the pole. The tenth plague was to show the bigger problem of the Egyptians and the Israelites' need for salvation from God's judgment. Why were the other nine plagues needed? Can you clarify what their purpose was? Um, Yeah, so this was Philip's talk, so I don't want (laughs) to... I could pass it to him. But yeah, so chapter six of um, Exodus helps us. Um, uh, No, not chapter six, sorry, chapter eight. Um, let me just find it. Uh, do, 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 do I mean chapter 8? I've not got my own Bible here, so um, I kind of, in my own Bible, know where it's placed on the page. Um, so kind of second column in, halfway down. <laughs> uh, anyway, chapter... Oh, right, goodness. It's chapter 8, isn't it? Anyway, forget, somewhere in the Bible. Uh, I can't quite um, see where it is. So in chapter 8, God says, um, by uh, 
uh, oh, in fact, sorry, yeah, chapter three, he says, uh, I'm going to, sorry, chapter five, rather, he's going to say, I'm going <laughs> to, yeah, you confused? Basically, early on, God says, I'm going to take your firstborn if you don't let my firstborn go. So the tenth plague is kind of always the plan. Uh, in chapter eight, we see God says, actually, I could have wiped you out at any point, but I've raised you up to proclaim my name for all the earth. So it's not that God kind of had to kind of up the ante, up the ante, up the ante until finally he gave in. It's actually God purposely did plagues one to nine to show his power. Mm -hmm. Um, So this might sound a bit gruesome, but I think it is. We look at the plagues and we see that God isn't to be messed around with, that he really is the I am, that he is truly um, all-powerful over his creation. Uh, And the plagues give us a sense... Uh, of that and um, if we get that sense I think then uh, we should like the Israelites needed to be be confident of him to get us through any challenges we face great thank you, there's lots here Rob I don't know how long you want to go on for (laughs) no that's right. maybe a couple more do we know if any of the Egyptians began to seek God after this yeah, I think so. So when, uh, I'm not going to attempt to find it, uh, but when they leave uh, Egypt, it says that a great multitude left with them, uh, which uh, seems to suggest that actually even some of the Egyptians saw that the game was up and left with the Israelites. Okay, great. Which does kind of prefigure the gospel in the sense of um, you see this through the Old Testament. Actually, mm. it's not just sort of one group that attaches himself to the Lord, uh, but it's those who have faith in him. Fabulous. Should we consider ourselves to be in the wilderness or in Canaan? Great question. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think the wilderness, not entirely, but almost 90% in the wilderness mm-hmm. because of a number of reasons. So, um, I think partly the passage I showed, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, we see there Paul says you've passed through, but actually the bit I didn't show is in the middle. He says don't go into idolatry like they did and perish in the desert. Um, and the point is that actually God said he could provide a way of escape. So he's got your back. Um, so there is a sense in which we're not home yet. We're not in a new creation. And we're like the Israelites wandering around uh, in the desert. Um, the other passage is Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, where Paul says, um, uh, when you hear his word, like the Israelites in the desert, don't harden your hearts. Um, so, yes, so we're not home yet. That doesn't mean, though, that things like judgment haven't been resolved, because even though we're in the wilderness, there is a sense in which we're kind of connected to the, the new creation to come. We are called a new creation as a church and we've been forgiven, and we have a relationship with the Father. So we are in the wilderness, we're not quite home, but kind of like an umbilical call, connected to, <laughs> to what's to come. That makes sense. Great stuff. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> uh, one from a military historian here. Is there any historical evidence aligning with the Egyptians' weak or weaker position after losing their entire army? Uh, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. There is... Um, do some digging and come back to me. Um, you can answer mm-hmm. your own question. I think there is a slight... Um, it's worth just saying, partly, I'm not an expert on archaeology, 
there are others that you can ask. Um, but uh, as, as I understand it, archaeology is really, really at its kind of infancy in terms of what we've discovered. And there are s s lots of artifacts that we've not even kind of got around to looking at that we've actually dug up. Um, there is something that's dug up um, uh, by the Egyptians which talks about um, kind of burying a pharaoh in water um, as a sign of kind of they failed or something like that. Um, you can ask me for the reference afterwards. But, uh, yeah, so there may be a slight hint there. Mm -hmm. But, no, there's no... We haven't dug up anything yet that says directly uh, this has happened. But it's also worth saying that, actually, empires don't generally record their defeats. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, so that shouldn't be a surprise. This leads us nicely onto the last question. Um, not the last question we've got here, but... <laughs> Did Pharaoh perish in the Red Sea? It's not said that he does, but I think partly because of uh, we're told that all the Egyptians did, and um, maybe that kind of Egyptian idea of actually pharaohs being cast into sea as a kind of sign of judgment, I think probably he did, um, but I couldn't point to a verse, but probably. Great, and uh, I'll, I'll finish with this one. It's not a question, but thank you for showing us how today's passage points to Jesus and how he has amazingly taken the sea of judgment for us and how we can have great confidence of being carried through this life. There well, we go. Amen. Yeah. There we go. Absolutely. Thanks for your questions. Really, really helpful. So thank you, John. Okay. Yes, thank you all.